Welcome to the Wisdom of the Womb podcast, your home for mind, body, and soul wellness for women. My name is Stephanie Adler. I'm a certified nutrition consultant, birth doula, and women's hormone and fertility expert. I've supported hundreds of women in having healthy cycles, healthy babies, and building a balanced foundation in their bodies and minds to set them up for a limitless life. Now it's your turn. I believe a woman reaches her full potential when she trusts the innate wisdom of her body and that those women change the world. So if you're wanting to achieve hormone harmony, have boundless energy, optimize your fertility, live a holistically healthy life, and learn how to love and trust your body to become the well woman you know you are meant to be, you're in the right place. Join me for weekly wisdom on topics such as holistic hormone and gut health, fertility, mindfulness, birth, pregnancy, and beyond, and leave with actionable steps towards well womanhood. Thanks for pressing play today. I'm so excited for the magic we're going to create together. Let's dive in. Hello, Wisdom of the Womb podcast fam. Y'all are in for such a treat today. I am so excited. I have Sarah Harmon here. She is not only a woman that I have the privilege of considering a friend and a colleague now, she did my cycle informed coaching certification, but she is also a licensed mental health therapist, mindfulness and yoga teacher, wellness expert, and founder of the School of Mom, which it stands for Mothering Oneself Mindfully and the Parent Wellness Group. She's so passionate about supporting people on their unique wellness journey with holistic approaches to mind body wellness. You can learn more about Sarah and her website, which we're going to link to the show notes. We're going to have all these fun connections to her in the show notes. You'll be able to follow her on Instagram, but we're going to have such a fun conversation today and I'm so excited. So Sarah, hi one, welcome to the podcast. Hi. I mean, people can't see right now, but you're just glowing. It's so fun to, to have a conversation with you. Well, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. You and I were chatting a little bit before we started recording. And honestly, we should have just clicked record right away because I feel like always fun stuff comes up then. But, and we were just sharing how, you know, I feel like this is a really poignant conversation for this community. We haven't specifically spoken to moms directly about motherhood in this way. And I think part of that is coming from, as I'm transitioning from, you know, maiden to mother right now, I have so many questions and curiosities that I'm excited to talk to you about. And I just know are going to be so relevant for this community. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an important and fun conversation for me to be in. Yeah. So why don't you, I mean, I shared your bio, but like, can you just introduce yourself a little bit more? Tell us who is Sarah Harmon? Yeah, Sarah Harmon. I live (laughs) North of Boston. And as you said, I'm a therapist before I was a therapist. uh, I taught yoga for, I I taught yoga for about, I've been teaching now for hmm, close to 14 years, I think. So a long time in the yoga and mindfulness space. Uh, I'm a mom to two girls. I have a six and a four-year-old and that's, yeah, that's me. (laughs) That's my quick bio. Amazing. And so it sounds like this mindfulness has been a really big part of your journey, right? The yoga, the mindfulness, and then therapy, like, tell me a little bit more about how you came to this work. Like what made you feel called to take this direction? I knew I was going to be a therapist since the first psychology 100 class in my undergrad. It was wild. Like I was one of those people I went to a liberal arts school. I took psych 100 and I was, I was 
fascinated and, and truly knew this is it for me. Mm-hmm. I, every single class, uh, not only in undergrad, but then in grad school got me so excited, like totally geeked out on all the psychology topics. And so that was the start. I would say I knew also like very deep down that I was not ready to be a therapist out of college. So I went, I traveled, I lived in uh, San Diego for a few years. I lived in New Zealand for a few years and then I came back and, and during that time I had gotten into yoga. I was a competitive athlete in high school and college and really done some wear and tear on my body and got into Bikram. And if anyone knows Bikram, mm-hmm. very intense type of yoga and knew that I wanted to teach yoga and actually came back and, and did a training in New York city uh, and then started grad school and really you know, was teaching yoga for a while, while I was learning to become a clinician And then it was really cool because I started, once I started to do clinical work, I was integrating yoga into my clinical work. And as I became more experienced as a clinician, I was teasing themes and kind of psychology and psychoed in some ways and reflective questions into my yoga classes. So it became this really cool evolution of there was no barrier between the two. And Ultimately, what that led to is now I'm in private practice and I'm constantly uh, bringing the body in to my clinical work and and teaching the skills of mindfulness. And as we'll talk about today, uh, really the skill of self-compassion as well, which is crucial for women and moms. Yeah. Um so funny when you brought up Bikram, I had this flashback. I like never been a huge fan of hot yoga in general. Like just like being in that kind of heat, like really stresses my body. And when I had just moved to San Francisco, I had like an acquaintance that asked me to go to a Bikram yoga class with her. And like 15 minutes into the class, I was like, I'm going to die. Like I need to leave. And I tried to leave and the teacher would not let me leave. And he like stopped the whole class. Like it was this horrible thing. And I felt so embarrassed and like embarrassed for the woman who brought me, you know, and I like never looked back. I was like, I'm going to faint. You got to let me out of here. (laughs) And it's just so funny. Like I literally haven't thought about that in such a long time. And it's interesting when you were bringing up this piece around self-compassion, I'm like, Honestly, I am looking back on this moment now. And I think for the first time I can like not be embarrassed about it and be like, wow, let's have some really big self-compassion there. And that's actually just allowing me to speak to the journey that I've gone on, you know, over the past seven years to be able to do that. Um, Same. I mean, that's so, it's so interesting looking at the evolution of, of yoga for an individual. Right. And I think for a lot of people that have been in a competitive space or, you know, really consider themselves like, you know, hard athletes. Bikram is, is the in because it's, you kind of feel like you're punishing yourself in a way, right? It's so rigorous. And I was in classes like that too. You, You know, you can't drink water until like the sixth pose. And I got yelled at once for leaving early to go. I had like a sailing race I wanted to go to. And I was like, you know, that's when things started to shift for me where I was like, this doesn't feel good. And I realized as I, you know, this was before things came out about brick room, um, which (laughs) you can go down a Google rabbit hole if you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, But I, when I realized I wanted to get certified, I thought long and hard about the Bikram certification, which I'd heard like they have throw up buckets in the room, well, you know, cause like it's so intense, which should have been a red flag in and of itself. Like now I can't believe in my, you know, in my 40 year old self-compassionate body that I would ever even consider something like that. 
Um, but I realized that it's so limiting, right? We can't, first off the conditions of Bikram, you, you can't just go teach a hot yoga class in someone's living room or have them do it because you, you, there's such rigid requirements. Uh, and also just that in, intuitive piece, which is why I love working with you and learning from you around your cycle, because really what we know is, you know, with Bikram, it's a prescription of 26 postures. If I'm remembering it properly, you know, each one you do twice every single time. And it was really where I realized that that doesn't always feel good. I think so often I wanted someone else to be telling me what to do and to make it hard. And as I've gotten older and have really learned about my body and, and had my own mindfulness practice, it's been a very dramatic shift from that, that type of container and that type of teaching to one where I'm in the, in the teacher seat of my own body's needs. And ultimately that's like what really what I, what I teach the women I work with is, is insourcing your mm. postures, insourcing your activities versus having someone else prescribe them to you and also have them be so rigid every day. Same thing, right? Yeah. Which we know is just so not aligned for most people who are in cyclical bodies who are changing and our needs change. And it's like, feels like such masculine energy. And yeah, I mean, that just really makes a lot of sense to me how that evolution can, cannot necessarily, how the evolution of not only your yoga practice, but also like bringing able, bringing it to the mindfulness world. Like it wouldn't make sense to be like, we have to do the same thing in the same structure every day. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'm actually really curious, you know, we've talked about this element of like self-compassion and how oftentimes from like for moms, how important that is. Right. And I'm actually really curious, like what areas do you see specifically mothers struggling with when it comes to mindfulness the most? Mm. I think the gosh. So number one is as moms, especially as new moms is you're just so tired and there's so much happening in your body. There's so much happening in your life. There's so much change that you really there's a disconnect, right? Because this body that you knew gets pregnant and it becomes this whole new body, right? And you're trying to navigate that. And then of course you, you have the baby and every, your whole life is turned upside down in a way. So I think sometimes it's really hard to access, even if you had a mindfulness practice before, it's hard to access that because in some ways you are in that survival mode, right? When we are fatigued and exhausted, our brains are not utilizing their prefrontal cortex, that executive functioning center, that part of your mind or your brain that is responsible for discernment, for pausing, right? Um, and so I think one of the challenging pieces to just to, to bring that home is, is that you're, you're not in a, an environment or a situation in postpartum where you're, you're primed in your brain for mindfulness <laughs> in some ways. Um, and then in other ways you are, because it's just, it's a real lesson in slowing down and, and tuning in because you're like, I actually physically can't do that. So it's a, it's a hard nudge and just slowing down, which for many women that I work with and including myself was, was jarring. Cause I'm like, I want to go. I want, I know, I want to know what I'm doing. Right. And it's, it's, so it's a, definitely a huge adjustment. Um, yeah. I think the other piece that I would say is you mentioned self-compassion and, 
And self-compassion, you know, kindness is a huge component of mindfulness, that self-kindness. And women tend to be really hard on themselves, right? And when you become a mom, there's so many more things to be critical of, you know, your body, the birth that you had or didn't have, what your kid is doing or not doing, uh, how you are mothering or not mothering, right? We kind of expect ourselves to just know how to do things. And it's really hard. These kids are so, they, they do, there's, there's such a learning curve with them. So what happens is, is that that self-critic that was present before having the baby gets a huge microphone, like a really loud microphone for some moms. And there's just, it's postpartum period is ripe for things to judge yourself on. And so that can hinder self-compassion without like, this is why this conversation is so important because I really, I'm hoping we have some, you know, maybe some women that are trying to get pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant, pregnant or postpartum. And even if you were out of that postpartum period, which is technically one year, uh, you're still postpartum. Like we're still, you know, you're still post having a kid and self-compassion is always a, a, a wonderful skill and the research backs that up. So I think, yeah, two things is just that the nature of kind of where you're at in your mind and body and, and the changing in your life. And the second being that there is a, a tends to be an increase in some of that self-criticism. Wow. I mean, it makes so much sense when you put it like that and you say it like that. And I also think for a lot of the women that I see that I work with, it doesn't feel so clear cut when you're in it. Right. It's just suddenly like, why do I feel this way? You know, I was just having a conversation with a client yesterday and she was saying that the heart, you know, we were kind of talking through a situation that happened and I was like, well, what if you had approached it this way? And she was like the hardest thing. And she, you know, she was like, you'll learn when you have kids is to take the pause. Like exactly like you said. And I mean, she's her youngest is three. Right. And so, like you said, you know, it's always postpartum. Right. And, you know, I think for so many women, like you said, this self-critic gets the microphone and Mm -hmm. yeah, I just really resonated with how you said that. And I'm curious. So this self-compassion being such a important skill for us Mm -hmm. as women, generally speaking, and then even more so when we become the guardians of these little humans running around in the world that like trigger all of these things that come up inside of us. What is typically the path towards developing that self-compassion that you see with the women that you work with? I always start with science. I think that mindfulness and self-compassion can appear really fluffy to people and they're not fluffy at all. They're actually challenging. Like it's like the Bikram class, like they're really hard. And the outcome of the practices is scientifically backed. We know that it makes you more mentally well, emotionally well, physically well. Um, there are, are a few caveats with mindfulness. If you're really struggling with severe mental illness, you know, if you have uh, severe depression or anxiety, sometimes, you know, meditating can, can be more of a trigger. And it's helpful to talk to your provider. It's just my like therapist disclaimer there. But for in general, becoming more mindful and more self-compassionate, you're going to reap the, the benefits. And I always point people to a very easy to remember website, which is Kristen Neff's website. It's selfcompassion.org. 
she's one of the researchers I've learned a ton about. She's got a book called Self-Compassion. Uh, she's a mother. And I, I really think that understanding some of the, the foundational uh, science-backed benefits is really, it's the, it's the in, right? And along with that, you learn the myths. So things like, you know, self-compassion is selfish. Actually, we see the opposite, right? It helps you be more present and more compassionate to others. Um, and so I would say, start with the science of the benefits and then understanding what it actually is. Like what is self, when we say self-compassion, what do we mean? And so what I've learned in my research and, and the big part of this is from Kristen Neff is there's three components. The first is awareness of suffering, right? So compassion, uh, the word compassion actually translates to suffer with. So when we are compassionate with someone, we are, we are joining them in their struggle. Now, when we're self-compassionate, right? We are with ourselves in our struggle in a sympathetic, uh, empathetic way, right? And so that is the first step is acknowledging their suffering. And when you're pregnant, there's a lot of suffering. It's super uncomfortable, right? It's great and fine and I'm excited, but then not just physical suffering, but a lot of mental and emotional suffering, right? I teach a, uh, in a company that I, I love and I'm affiliated with called Nurture by Naps. I teach their baby boot camp. And uh, I teach a mind, mind tools for labor delivery and beyond, right? And one of the questions I asked just in the beginning with all these new parents is, what's going on in your head right now? Tell me the craziest, scariest thought. And it's like, I'm going to die in labor. My baby is going to ruin my life, right? And these are this is suffering. It's not all hunky-dory, right? Even if you've been so eager to become a mom and to get, to get pregnant, you've been working hard at it. So suffering is present. And that's outside of pregnancy too. One of the things we know is to be human is to suffer. It's a foundational teaching of mindfulness. And that sounds kind of dark. I think it's very freeing. It's like, great, you're suffering, I'm suffering, we're all suffering <laughs> in some capacity, right? Um, now, the presence of suffering needs to be there. Then when we have that, when we're aware, when we're mindful that there's a struggle, the second piece of self-compassion is common humanity. And this is why podcasts are so helpful, why, you know, social media in some ways or commu any community you can join of women that are going through the same thing. You, you know, you're not alone. This is the, I'm not alone in my struggle. And that's the second piece. And then the third piece is kindness. So being intentional about how you talk to yourself how you treat yourself, what you choose to do or not do, right? Kindness can be putting your feet up instead of, you know, doing errands. Um, kindness can be saying, you know, Stephanie, I'm doing, you're really working so hard right now. You're doing a really good job, or this is really hard and you're a good mom, right? So whatever it might be that you can access and practice uh, to, to be kinder to yourself is a big part of it. So science and understanding what it is and how to practice it. I think that's where you begin. Yeah. And I really loved that tangible takeaway at the end of just like, what would it be like to speak to yourself in a kind way, right? And rewrite that narrative. Uh, because that's something we can all do. Like imagine how you would speak to your best friend in this situation, right? Exactly. If she called you and said the same thing that you're saying to yourself, like how would you communicate with her? And it probably wouldn't be like, you suck that you're doing a terrible job, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And that's a go-to with self-compassion is what would you say to a friend? 
what would you say to them? And then I'm kind of a little cheeky about it when they're like, yeah, I can say it to a friend, but I won't say it to myself. And I, I will say like, well, what makes you so special? Like that you, that you're not outside of that saying, you know, that kind of catches people off guard. They're like, yeah, I guess, I don't know. I, I'm like, are you really that special that you don't deserve that? Right? Like you're right. And one of the ways I think about this, and this is so helpful for moms, I think to, to, to get it is when that, when your baby is born, you look at them and you love them and they are completely worthy of kindness, of hugs, of acceptance. And they have done nothing except for make your body hurt maybe. And, you know, except for pee and poop and scream, right? They've done nothing. And we were those kids once. We were those kids that are completely worthy of kindness and acceptance without having done nothing, right? But yet as women and as moms, right, in, in a huge piece of this, of course, is, is culture and systems that we've been brought up in, is proving ourselves and feeling like we are not worthy. And as moms, especially, like feeling like, you know, we have to kind of punish ourselves and we should be always better. We should always kind of know the best thing to do. And just that softening and saying, no, actually unsubscribe. <laughs> Motherhood is hard. Kids are hard. All kids are different. My journey is different than your journey. This is hard. We're not alone. May I be patient with myself. Mm, super interesting. I actually am really curious if we can go back to this concept of suffering for a second, because I've actually like what you shared was like really different than the way that I've approached this concept of suffering in the past. And I, and I feel like really called to just unpack that a little bit with you, if that's okay. Yeah. I've operated over the past, I don't know, decade, maybe, I don't know where I heard this saying originally, but that pain is inevitable, but that suffering is optional. Right. <clears throat> And I truly feel like that has been a guiding principle of my life where like, I can make a choice to not be suffering, even if I'm experiencing challenge, pain, hardship, you name it. And so it was really interesting for me to hear you say like, to be human is to suffer, like the suffering is present and to suffer in pregnancy. And it was interesting because like, I, you know, work with a lot of pregnant people and I, you know sometimes like snap them out of it a little bit when they're in that, like, this is really hard. Yeah. And we like reframe around like, okay, yes. And is this also maybe one of the most beautiful things I've ever done in my life? And I feel like sometimes that reframing has at least under this, uh, theory that I've operated under of like suffering is optional, even if pain is inevitable. Um, so anyways, just kind of curious your thoughts on that, because it was such a different way for me to think about suffering the way that you just shared it. And I, yeah. I'm just intrigued. Yeah. So what I did not elaborate on, so I'm glad you've asked is the, the, the very important teaching around that first line, which is to be human is to suffer, but suffering is caused by resisting our current situation or wishing it were different. It's caused mm -hmm. by resistance and craving. So all of us suffer because we resist the current place we're in. So I'm with you on that. And that also speaks to one of the core components of mindfulness, which is I teach a whole module on this in my signature program. It's called Mothering Oneself Mindfully. And that is acceptance. And when you're pregnant, Right. And, and this is why, like, this is exactly what you're doing as a provider. It's saying, okay, you, if I'm saying like, oh, you know, say for example, even I'm not pregnant, like Stephanie, I'm having horrible 
horrible period cramps, like horrible. And I don't want to have them. And ugh, like, this is the worst and I'm suffering, right? I am having the period cramps in the moment. So resisting the period cramps in that moment is making it worse. Just being like, I don't want to be in this is on some level, very much making it harder. It's making me suffer more. It doesn't mean though, that I'm not like, please help me alleviate some of the period cramps, right? So it's not like apathetically, you know, resigning to the fact that this is suffering and this is how it's going to be. It is though saying in the moment, this is hard, this is suffering and like it's happening. So I'm going to allow it, especially when it comes to sensations, as you get into labor and delivery, right? Where this is uh, the, what we know is when we resist it, it leads to contraction, Right. And so we want to be notice and notice the resistance and then allow and, and uh, breathe through that so that we can accept that current state that we're in. So hopefully that clarifies because I, yes, a hundred percent. I think, you know, if you were a, an enlightened being, you would never get to the resistance and craving maybe, but for most of us, like we can't help it. Like we're suffering. And then we like, of course we don't want to be suffering. We want to feel better. Like we're, we're avoiding pain and seeking pleasure all the time. Yeah, that actually was really helpful and it makes so much sense. And when you were talking about the period pain and then you linked it to labor and birth, how, you know, like it, it does create fear, tension, pain cycle. Like that's exactly what that is, right? When we experience fear, which if we are not in acceptance of our current state and unhappy with where we are, right, then we're going to experience fear around it. Maybe I'm afraid that my period cramps are going to be like this forever. I'm afraid that this labor is going to go on for 72 hours. Like whatever the fear is creates more tension, which actually creates more pain, which in this analogy creates more suffering. Right. Exactly. Um, and for anyone who's listening to this, by the way, who's curious about this fear, tension, pain, and how it actually relates to period cramps. We have an episode on that. It's called your period retreat. And we actually talk a lot about like, how do we embrace the period that's coming? And like, that actually creates a less painful period when we yes. like invite it in and like open ourselves up to it, which is the exact opposite of what you're sharing around this resistance. Right. Yes. Um, and it's the same goes the same skill of expecting and being uncomfortable on purpose and intentional discomfort is the same skill that you bring into labor and delivery and motherhood, right? Like if I, the the more resistant I am to my four-year-old's epic tantrums right now, like they're big, right? The more suffering I'm causing myself. Am I uh, going to just say, this is how it is and not get support. No, I've talked to like uh, parenting coaches and friends who have child, you know, some, some deeply feeling four-year-olds as well. And in the moment, the more that I can say, she's having a big tantrum, this is hard. This is really hard. And just let it be the more effective I am as a parent and the less suffering I'll ultimately endure. Right. And so this is, it's a life skill of being uncomfortable on purpose. And there's like really challenging the myth that everything's supposed to be hunky-dory all the time. It's not right. Like most, like when I, for example, when I teach uh, the science of happiness, I teach that like, you know, life is not a hundred percent happiness. It's there's unpleasant and there's pleasant. Sometimes it's 50, 50, sometimes it's 80, 20, whatever it is. It's just never, it's never a hundred percent happy, never a hundred percent pleasant. And when I teach the science of happiness and I teach that and say, part of being happy is understanding that you, that happiness is not the goal. It's more being more accepting and present in the, in the emotion that you're in. 
And I joke, like if I was going to teach the science of sadness, no one would come. Right. But like, that's ultimately what it is. It's the science of happiness is the science of sadness is the science of anger. It's called emotions. We all have them. We all have the full range of them. And yet we resist the unpleasant ones. Uh, and, you know, going down the rabbit hole, of, like that's a big part of that is programming and systemic and all those things. Um, but why? Like being human means to have that full range and to be in unpleasant circumstances. So the less we can resist those and be kind to ourselves in them and not beat ourselves up for having them because they're just part of the human experience. They're part of the postpartum experience. The more easeful our experience will be. Mm. Yes. A woman. I'm like loving those conversations so much. And when you were talking about like this, you know, the, the happiness and like wanting to be happy all the time, I actually had the thought of like how people always want to be, they're like, well, why isn't ovulation all month long? Right. And it's like, well, because we actually need these other seasons to balance. Like it wouldn't actually feel good to be in an ovulation energy all the time. And I know that this piece around compassion was something that really connected to the cycle informed work that we did together and that you are bringing more into your work. And so I'd love if you want to expand on that a little bit of like, how does this self-compassion piece tie in with being more cycle informed? What made you like desire to kind of learn more about cycles and then incorporate it into your work more, just anything on that, um, on that road. Yeah. I mean, I'm laughing. I was just on a girl's weekend away and a bunch of us were, were, we had our periods and one of my friends said, yeah, I feel like my, like for two to three days after my period are like the best days. And then the rest of the month is like the worst. And she really oh. was speaking that I, I kind of had this like, oh yeah, like it kind of used to be like that for me, but for me, it was around ovulation. Like I do love that kind of springtime, uh, energy. And, um, so I would say for me, my journey to cyclical living, uh, was, uh, I actually through Kate Northrup's book, do less. I was introduced as kind of the first place where my mind was blown. And I was like, wait, what? Like, why, why is no one talking about this? Right. And now I, I can't, you know, once you learn about it, you can't go back. And I realized I had a lot of resistance for sure. Uh, to different stages of my cycle, not knowing that those were stages. So for example, my luteal stage, now that I know my luteal stage, like I, I someone told me once you're kind of like an irritated squirrel in that stage. And now understanding full well what happens in that stage and expecting it and embracing the, the good parts, right? The parts that actually are really helpful, right? In that stage has completely shifted it for me. Um, but what was so frustrating was not understanding that or being aware of the trends, right? Like, so once a month, I was like, I, I like, feel like I need to get a divorce. Like, I don't like my husband. Everyone's irritating me. Like, you know, I, and you go into this dark spiral and now having the awareness of like, Oh, like that's, you know, are you in the little stage? Oh, good. Check, 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 check. Like everything you're checking all the boxes. It's so freeing. And it really takes the huge weight off of the emotions, right? Because what it eliminates is the judgment, the story, the narrative about the experience. And that that's that acceptance piece. Um, so for me now, why I, why I reached out to you to join the, the cycle informed coaching is I work with women. I work with moms and I think 
there's never um, a better time in your life than when you're becoming a mom where you're more aware of your cycle, right? Like most of us don't really think about our cycle other than our period. And when we need to go get tampons until we decide to have kids. And then you're like, oh, ovulation is a thing. And oh, I can only get pregnant on like two days. Like what? What are you talking about? And that gift, I, I really think it's a gift. Like my kids have given me this gift of new body awareness and cycle awareness. And from, from a mindfulness perspective, being aware of having the self-knowledge of those four stages and exploring and getting curious around what's happening in each of those stages, I think for me, and I think for a lot of the women I work with is the bridge to get to know your body that we've all been looking for, right? I, I for me, I've been very disconnected from my body. I, I, had a mother uh, who was a whole other story, but she struggles with mental illness and was never very connected with her body. When I was teaching yoga, she wasn't the mom that ever could come to my yoga class. I remember I like taught a yoga class to like my, my dad and some friends in a living room. And she was like, no, no, I don't do that. Right. Like very disconnected from her body. Uh, so, and me too, like I drank a fair amount when I was in my twenties and just, you know, did Bikram was like, whatever they tell me to do, I'll do. But if my body hurts, I'm not going to listen to that. Right. So uh, you get the point, very disconnected, very disembodied. And I feel like cyclical living and having kids was this, was this like someone extending a hand, literally my body extending a hand to be like, come on in, like, come, come on in and get to know me a little bit better. And what that's been really cool. Um, and from you, you know, now things like I, I use the temp drop, um, and it's like, I, the science part of me really loves the trends I'm seeing. I'm like, oh my God, it is so cool how on day 13 every month, like, and it's not always so consistent, but usually it's like day 13, I have this massive drop that's ovulation, you know? And like, my mind is blown every time I'm like easy to please over here, but it's so cool, right? I didn't know that before. And just seeing like the luteal stage, how hot I am and understanding that. And it's funny, like, you know, I, there, I was so honest in our group. Like there's some parts of cyclical living that I was like, yeah, hey, I'm not on board. Like the mucus and things like that. I'm like, yeah, I'll get there, you know, but just the baby steps and meeting myself where I'm at with just tracking the temperature and having that awareness. I, I, I can definitely notice a shift in my resistance for sure. Um, and just my general, like how I feel, uh, you know, I used to have some painful periods, for example, and I, they've definitely lessened. Um, and I, I know that's a product of just being more accepting and compassionate and, and aware of what's going on in my body. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more that awareness around what's happening in your cycle, awareness as to what's happening in your body connection with your body leads to loving the vessel that guides you through this world that we're married to, which then also creates more self-compassion with our mind and like the mind body connection. So I, I, I feel very fortunate to be able to see so many women coming into this now. And it's really something that, you know, I'm hopeful that the next generation isn't going to wait until they're you know, starting to think about having kids to understand that actually like ovulation is like the main event and like everything around it is equally as important. And it's not just, Hey, when do I have blood coming out of my vagina that I need to pay attention to this. Right. Yeah. And I've learned to love that like first day of my period where I, it's just like, boom, 
you know, it's like every, it's like the, the, the uh, Instapot has been released, <laughs> right? They're like, I really feel like it's like the pressure cooker, like all that penned up, like rage and irritability of my luteal stage. It's like, ah, oh, yes. It's like, feels a little bit like freedom. And so while there are some more phys- physical discomforts, I think mentally and emotionally, I, I've learned to like, love that part of it. So I think that's the other piece is seeing you know, when you look at, as you call them, the applications, right? The focus piece, uh, really being curious around those different ways of looking at your cycle. It's not always about the body. Um, and of course the body and mind are always dancing with each other, but, uh, I just thought, I think that's so fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, we know that your brain chemistry changes 25% over the course of your cycle. Like, of course, that's going to impact the way that you talk to yourself, the way that you think about yourself, the way that you relate to others, the way like everything. Right. Yes. And, and so, yeah, thing that I actually, it's so now that you're live, I'm going to ask you this. Cause I, I was fascinated by this little bit, uh, is as we get into our forties, you mentioned something around like every drink changes your hormones, something amount, like what is it with the around alcohol? Yes. Yeah. So it's actually not just when you're in your forties. Um, but oftentimes we just see this become more problematic when women are older, just because of the way estrogen impacts the body, but every, every drink of alcohol can raise your estrogen levels between five to 15%. I mean, that's mind blowing. Again, like a group of of friends, we're all in our forties talking about how like even one glass of wine now impacts us. And I had that. I was trying to remember the statistic. I was like, oh, my cycle coach told me. I, I can't remember, but it was enough that it's notable, right? I mean, that's a big deal. And we're sensitive beings, you know? So uh, I just think these statistics and this awareness is so important for women. Like, I, I just, I'm, thank you for answering that because I need to hear it again and again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, you know, in the the average, you know, social setting. It's like, let's have some wine. Let's go get drinks. So let's do that. I mean, I, once you become aware of it, it's like, you're almost like out of the matrix, you know, and you're like, Whoa, okay. And it starts to be really evident how it's so easy for women to just get in a situation where you're having casually four or five drinks a week, which could impact your estrogen levels anywhere from 20, 25 to, you know, a hundred percent more in the body and estrogen you know, we, we love estrogen. She's fun aunt estrogen, but she like flirts that line with crazy aunt estrogen when things get a little bit wonky. So <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's always, um, it's always interesting when we talk about the alcohol component of this. And I'm, and I'm sure also from the mindfulness perspective, just like the way in which alcohol, and I feel like we could have a whole separate podcast about that, but just how alcohol, you know, is so frequently, I see this all the time, like used as a stress management tool and how really it's numbing you to the things which oftentimes are actually the gateway to dealing with the root, the underneath causes of the stress. Oh my gosh. I I mean, we, we should add, I'm inviting myself back. We should absolutely (laughs) have a conversation because it's so it's, this is a topic that comes up in so many client calls with me, whether it's individual or group calls and definitely with my group of friends. And I think the missing piece is the what's happening in our bodies because people don't have the knowledge or the language to put to that, but they're feeling it, right? Like, why can't I drink so much? Why do I feel this way? 
And uh, it was really, it's such a cool conversation. You know, we're all in our forties, my group, and we're all navigating this, uh, this shift in our behavior and how we, you know, it's we're really tuned in. And, and so I'm really grateful to be a part of a group of friends that can talk openly about that. Uh, but I think the more that we hear other people talk openly about it, it gives us this, uh, again, the invitation to do it ourselves. So we'll definitely have to do a part two. Um, I feel like I could just jive on this stuff forever because I'm super passionate about it, but I did have one question that I wanted to ask you super selfishly (laughs) before I let you go. And it's really around, I mean, I will just speak for myself. I am someone who I, I love, I consider myself a mindful person. I have lots of different tools in my toolbox that I, you know, feel like I can rely on meditation, breath work, uh, journaling. Those are tools that really work for me. Something that I used to, and still pretty much do, but less with structure is like me time every morning that doesn't have to look the same, but it has to include, sometimes it's like laying in bed and reading. And sometimes it's, you know, doing a long meditation, whatever it is. And it was interesting when you said to me, you know, especially postpartum, like the, the mindfulness, like the, the space for mindfulness is not really there. And it's something that has been on my mind a lot because I have found myself in different seasons of life. If I get distracted or if things are different or challenging, if I'm in a new environment that that practice slips a little bit. And I'm really curious what your guidance would be, what your tips are for new moms who are going into, you know, this postpartum period and like how to, reconnect back to, or connect for the first time to a a mindfulness routine. And if there's anything that we should be keeping in mind, I'll speak from the first person here, we should be keeping in mind before going into that experience to help ensure that it happens in a way that is productive for the family. Yeah. I love this question. I speak about two types of practice, dedicated and integrated, right? So dedicated is the sit down, press play in the meditation. It's the go to the meditation retreat, go to the yoga class, very intentional boundaried practice. Integrated is fueled by dedicated. It's the, I'm taking a shower mindfully. I'm conscious of what I'm saying to my friend in this conversation. I am feeling the baby breathing on my chest, Mm. right? And this is kind of the same example of if you were going to go play in a concert, right? You need to practice your instrument before you go. I never did when I played an instrument in high school, but (laughs) and and I noticed it, right? I was horrible. Um, So what's tricky is when you become a parent, new parent, your dedicated practice times are not presented to you very, very often or openly, right? Uh, right now, like, you know, before kids, you can go meditate when you want. You can wake up and have a glorious morning routine. You have, you know, the weekends, you have the, you have all this spare time to do that. When you become a mom and you're in that postpartum period, that time feels very hard to come by. Um, so what I would say is to set yourself up is to really start to, A, if you can do some dedicated practices now, awesome. Uh, your brain can change pretty quickly with my meditation. You know, if we can dedicate like 10 minutes a day uh, to, to pressing play on a meditation, noticing your body, noticing your breath, noticing your thoughts and being intentional about those. 
uh, that will help when you're in the moments of life where you can be two things. You can be mindless, like caught up in your thinking. And, and a lot of those thoughts are unhelpful, 30 to 50,000 thoughts a day, right? Uh, and when you're tired, those thoughts can be more unhelpful because you're in that survival mode, right? Um, so dedicated and then really leaning into those integrated practices as well. So when you're looking in the mirror, what are you saying to yourself? Uh, linking your practice to specific things you're doing every day and letting that be your integrated practice, that's going to be really huge because even though you're so tired, you're still going to brush your teeth, right? At least once a day. You may not shower once a day, so maybe you just pick <laughs> brushing your teeth, right? We had a funny call with moms the other day and like everyone was like admitting they didn't shower. Like maybe, you know, maybe it was once a week. It was great. So don't use the shower if that's once a week, but you know, you're drinking your tea or you're putting your feet on the floor once you wake up. You got to get out of bed at some point. So that's a deep breath. So identify the integrated practices now. And I would say your baby in and of itself is like a meditation prop. Always. Your kid is always a meditation invitation. Uh, so when they're on you, especially when they're quiet, you know, it's really easy to sit there and mindlessly scroll your phone. And I, I, I recommend that because sometimes you just need to do that. And can you spend 10 minutes or five minutes just breathing with your baby and softening your body and noticing your thoughts, right? Let that be your dedicated practice. So it looks different but it is still accessible. You have to be a little more creative and you have to be more intentional. That's the thing. Because uh, really, again, we can be super mindful in those postpartum stages. It's just, we do have to be thoughtful about it and think about it in advance. Um, and then the other thing I'll say is now that I have a four-year-old, I can look back on it. And now uh, I actually had this question from a mom recently. She said to me, you know, like she had just gone away on a weekend away. And she was like, I felt so great. I felt so present and it was awesome. And she's like, my question to you, Sarah, is, can I ever access that feeling when I'm with my kids? And my answer was like, I, you know, I, I don't have a hard and uh, fast answer on that one, but like my initial reaction is kind of like, well, not to that extent, no. <laughs> and this really speaks to the importance of protecting and asking for and getting support around that boundary time, i.e., mom gets out on a walk by herself if she can. Mom goes out to a coffee shop by herself. Mom stays in the house while partner takes baby out, right? Like, and doesn't do laundry. She just spends time by herself. So deciding now that you might get caught up in that pull of like, oh, I have to be with the kid or I can't get time away or I can't take the shower. No, no, no. Like decide now you are not going to be that person. You are going to be the, the woman that knows that that dedicated time away from her kid, even if it's half an hour or 20 minutes is life-giving. And to do that in the beginning, as soon as you can, I, like I just went on a girl's weekend away too with my partner. And uh, every time we do it, we're like, why do we not do this more? Right. Every time I push myself to go on a walk with a friend, I come back in a much different head place. So please give yourself permission. And the thing is you do have to make the effort and ask for that because no one really comes, unless you have an amazing partner or mother that comes over and says, Stephanie, I'm going to take your baby for two hours. You go do whatever you want, right? That doesn't happen to most of us. We have to ask for it and we have to believe that it's important 
in order to ask for it. Yeah. That just made me actually really excited and really feel reassured that I can do this. Like that was amazing. And thank you so much. I feel really inspired by like the little moments, like when you were talking about having, you know, the feeling the baby breathe on your chest and just like tapping into that and like allowing that to be the mindful moment. And I mean, something that I'm really passionate about is this idea of ritual and like what makes the mundane magic, right? Mm -hmm. Your morning cup of coffee could just be your morning cup of coffee, or it can be this really beautiful ritual where like you smell the beans and you're aware of like the heat that's coming through the cup as you sip it. And like that to me, like the ritualing or the ritualizing, <laughs> ritualing yes. is not a word, the ritualizing it of, is now <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Webster <laughs> dictionary. Are you listening? But like, you know, really how do we ritualize some of these everyday moments, which then makes them meaningful, which then makes them special. And that was actually what you, what really resonated with me while you were speaking, where it was like, we have like, what is it like to just feel the water on you, washing you? Like, what is it washing away when you're in the shower and just remembering to tap into those moments and that, I mean, I also appreciate the reminder to take the dedicated time and love this differentiation between dedicated and, and integrated. It's like the, when you go to yoga and someone says it's about what happens off the mat, right? Like that has always really resonated with me. Um, and yeah, I'm feeling like those were some really amazing ways to bring all of it together and be like, yeah, mama, I got this. And I'm hoping that anyone listening to that also feels the same way. Um, and like, also I'm going to be going through this soon. So like reach out to me and let's connect about it because it's going to be really fun. And like, let's be really mindful mamas about it. (laughs) Totally. And I think one thing just to tag on that is, is the, you know, let it be. So there's Kronos and Kairos time. If you've heard about that, the different types of time, right. The, um, Kronos time is the like mundane, like watching the clock type of time. And Kairos time is the, like, you have no idea what time it is. You're in the moment time. Right. And with what I would say around the ritual is uh, let the ritual be like one Kairos moment a day, you know, like you, cause I think the other thing sometimes is yes, the mundane can be amazing. And sometimes the mundane can be really fucking painful (laughs) because you're like, I have been in this chair with this baby for three months straight. I feel like my butt isn't, you know, so you have to discern between those moments of this is hard. It's temporary. And this is a moment that I'm in it. Um, so ritualizing almost the like, uh, just the, the ebb and flow and, and, and honoring like the chair that you sit with the baby in is just the ritual is the check-in. And sometimes it's really cool. And sometimes you are crawling out of your skin because all you want to be doing is like, you know, putting dishes away. <laughs> so one, I, I love this. And actually, I think Glennon Doyle mentioned this. She was like, shoot for one Kairos moment a day as a parent. That really stuck for me because it takes the pressure off moms to like seize the day or seize the stage your kid's in. Uh, And it really helps you honor the stage you're in with those little moments. I love that. 
well, I'm going to be taking these tools and majorly applying them in the coming months. And I'm also even more inspired to sit in my dedicated practice as much yes. as possible now so that it feels yeah. even more accessible when the dedicated practice maybe isn't as available. But this just whole conversation has been really illuminating and inspiring. And I'm curious for women who are listening to this, who want to get more magic from you and want to learn more about mothering themselves mindfully, where they can find you, what kind of programs you offer. What does that look like? Yeah. So the school of mom.com is my website. Uh, I have a foundational program called mothering oneself mindfully and uh, in its evolution, it's ended up at being eight months. It used to be six weeks, uh, but now it's super spacious. So it runs this, this school year technically. Uh, so October to May, we have the buffers on the end for moms to get their kids actually in school, which is a very chaotic time. We'll support you when you get there, Stephanie. <laughs> the September is, is something special. Um, but so that's the mom program. Uh, and then I, I also just launched a program called Untethered, which is geared for the mom who has a more challenging relationship with her mother or her mother-in-law. Uh, that is my story. Uh, I have I have a mother who struggles with mental illness. I've had a long road with her. So it's really that kind of letting go of the mother model you wish you had and, and untethering yourself from a lot of that resentment and expectation and anger and guilt and all the things that come along with that. Um, and I just you know would love to invite people into my free community. I have an online community called uh, the Mom Campus Community right now, and it's uh, you're more than welcome to join. Uh, you can actually just go to motheringonesselfmindfully.com to join that. And in that, actually, I'll be inviting people into my first ever cycle-informed offering. I know, uh, I'm, I know, right? Thanks to, to Stephanie, I am doing a cycle-informed or cyclical living summer camp. So it'll start. Uh, in June, and I'll be doing uh, two months of just looking how we apply the cycle-informed principles and cycle-informed living to motherhood. Uh, I think like my my current community is like chomping at the bit for this stuff, and I've teased it a little bit, and so they're like, "Come on, bring us, give us more." So I would love for people if you're interested in cycle-informed and also mothering, and those circles cross. Uh, I'm really excited to start to integrate more of, of what I've learned uh, from this amazing woman here in front of me uh, into my community. I'm so excited about this program. That sounds incredible. And also just your programs in general and what they offer in the community and resources that they can provide for women to have an easier time in this you know, season of life, which as you know, I'm all about helping women like flow through life with more ease and abundance in that way. So, so much alignment here. And I'm so grateful for the time that you spent with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. We'll link everything in the show notes. So if you're interested in any of Sarah's programs, her community that she offers, um, want to just check out her website, whatever it is, we're going to have it all below. And yeah, just thanks again for this really beautiful time together today. Thank you so much. I can't wait to meet your baby virtually. <laughs> Me too. I, I'm at that place now where I'm just like, I'm really excited to meet him. And also like, I'm really cherishing this time that my husband yes. and I have together, but like, yes. also he's going to be so cute. So thank you, know, you. It's the best. I say to all expecting parents, you know, uh, cause I, especially if you're someone listening, who's expecting, who's had someone say to you, like, enjoy your relationship while you can, or like travel while you can sleep while you can. It's such unhelpful advice. Right. And I, it is the hardest and the best 
It is just truly the most incredibly life-changing in all the good and hard ways. Cause most of the things that are hard are the best. Um, and so I'm so excited for you and I can't wait for us to stay connected as you go through this journey. Likewise, love. Thank you so much.